What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. We are currently into our second week of lockdown, which is crazy. And I'm going to tell you about my experience through this whole lockout in a second. But first, I want to intro uh, who I have on the show today. I have Justin Menzinger. He is a fellow reworker. He's crushing it right now. He makes very cool product. Um, He worked at RSVP Gallery in Chicago for a long time. He got a lot of experience there. And uh, yeah, we sat down today and chatted. He's held up in lockdown in Chicago. And um, yeah, stay tuned for that. But first, I want to tell you about my whole coronavirus experience here. Two weeks ago, um, we were about we were going to have our alley sale, which is a fill a bag sale. We do a few times a year. We sell bags for ten bucks, and people get to fill it up with tons of clothes. They're always super successful, and we get tons of people out. But they're just crazy sales. People are tripping over each other and fighting for the clothes, and it's like huge crowds, like up to like thousand people sometimes. So this was like over two weeks ago, and we had to, we had to call the sale because of. Obviously, um, you know, they started to put into place all these social distancing things and store, some stores started to close and some stores started to put in different measures. And it, it was crazy how this all started because this would have been like the 13th of March. And then every day they're like telling us new things like there's more cases. You got to you got to social distance, you know, and then it was like it was basically our decision if we wanted to have the sale or not. Then we canceled the sale. Then we closed uh, F as in Frank Vancouver the following Monday. And then like, I think the same day we shut down Vancouver, uh, F as in Frank Toronto. And then the Hudson Bay pushed it. They kept open for like two more days. So then we shut down the Hudson Bay. And then I'm seeing like LA stores were open for a few more days after that. And they shut down. It was just this like slow rollout system of like shutting it down. And they probably should have just shut everything down. Right off the bat, I had uh, a holiday planned with my kids and my wife to go to this small mountain in uh, the Okanagan called Mount Baldy. And um, I would have called that trip off. But considering it was probably the most remote place we could have gone to, and luckily they kept the ski lifts open for a week beyond any other resort. So yeah, that same weekend, Whistler Blackcomb shut down, all Vale resorts shut down, all ski hills shut down. You know, Hudson's birthday party trip to um, Monster Truck Jam got got canceled, which I was going to cancel even if it didn't get canceled. But yeah, it was just crazy. This massive snowball effect of the world slowly shutting down. And then here we are two weeks into lockdown. The only thing that's happening in our company right now is Frankie's still selling online. I'm selling some stuff via like Instagram and um whatever i can ebay but i'm not really even putting anything on ebay and uh kind of just working on frankie hunkering down we had to like run super slim shifts so people can social distance so like may only a couple people in the warehouse at a time um you know we're calling our landlord seeing if people will defer rents and uh laid off a ton of people we are just living in a wild time right now we are living in a wild time um don't know what else to say. So I haven't been able to think about much besides that in the last little while. Um, plus, I was on a trip with my family, but I'm back and I'm going to be doing uh, some more podcasts. I have some guests lined up. Today's episode super rad um, with Justin. He's a great dude, super young, putting out cool product. 
I think he's got a really bright future ahead of him. So um, stay tuned. And I also recently launched my mastermind group. I finally pulled the trigger. I got it going. We have about 50 members in the group. I'm super stoked on everyone involved. We're doing our first live tomorrow night, but the group's been running for maybe five days. And, uh, you know, we've all been contributing. There's been lots of great input into the group so far. Everyone did intro videos. And, um, yeah, I think it's going to be really, really dope. So there's still a few slots left. If you want to get in my group, send me a message on Instagram and I'll send you the link. I'll also put a link in the description here on the YouTube channel and the podcast to read more about what that group is about and for your chance to get in. Without further ado, let's get into Justin's episode. This is my first time using Zoom, by the way, so hopefully the audio is all right. Justin, welcome, dude. Thanks for coming no on. No problem. Thanks for having me. For sure. How you been? How's lockdown treating you? Uh, pretty good. I'm just trying to like multitask, you know, probably the same way that you do, like between like reselling vintage stuff and then working on pieces. Yeah. So is your studio in your house? Yeah. So uh, my lease is actually up. Uh, I'm in my studio right now. I have a two bedroom loft okay. in Chicago. But um, I'm moving in like less than a month, like like two weeks. My lease is up though. So how's that gonna work with all this shit going on? Like, you think did you have a new place to to move to or what? Yeah, I'm kind of in between places right now because a lot of people were like on you know getting apartments as soon as everything started getting locked down. So I wasn't able to get a place because my lease is up the middle of the month. I'm not moving until May 1st, so I'm going to have, like, two weeks of, like, downtime where, like, all my stuff is going to be in storage, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Shit. Yeah. It's such a weird time because they're saying that, like, people can't get evicted either right now, right, because of the, what's going yeah. on. So, how? So you're Chicago, right? That's what you said? Yeah, born yeah. Born and raised? So I grew up well, – I was born in Michigan. I moved to Illinois – in first grade and then I was raised 45 minutes outside the city my whole life I went back to Michigan for two years I went to Michigan State and then I was like so out of my element I took for granted um how close I was to the city here yeah and then uh, so I transferred back and finished my last two years of college in the city and then I've lived here the whole time so, like once I transferred back I've moved downtown Obviously, as a kid, I lived with my parents in the burbs. Oh yeah. So yeah. why wh why were you out of your element? Because um, like in state in the in like the country or what? Uh, Michigan was kind of just like 
didn't really have anything going on besides like football, you know, or like no one there was interested in clothes or like photography or anything artistic. So I kind of felt isolated. I had like a group of friends there who skated, um, but like they were like mostly into like like video games and shit. So like we would skateboard and that was fun. Cause that's how I got into clothes, the skateboarding. Nice. But I did, I only had like one friend there who like understood anything about clothing or photography. He got me into photo. So he, he actually made my logo that I have now for my brand. Nice. Um, so what were you studying? So I, I graduated high school and then I went to Michigan State and I was this business, like a uh, business major. I didn't like pick uh, specifically what I was going to do. So the first two years, you're just like, go through all the gen eds and then I picked marketing because I felt like marketing was going to be the most helpful for what I was trying to do with clothing. Oh yeah, so at that point you had already decided you're going to get into this clothing biz. Yeah, so it kind of was simultaneous. Um, I graduated high school. I still wasn't really making clothes. I was reselling stuff though on eBay. I had been doing that since I was a kid. And then um, I kind of got there and like it, literally the first day I got there, I had already had an idea of like having a, a clothing store and a brand with a friend we would like kind of talk about it. We never did anything. We made like one iron on t-shirt two years before that when I was like a sophomore, he was like a senior and it was terrible. Like we didn't know what screen printing was. We didn't know anything. So when I got to Michigan state, I was like kind of on my own and I like lived on my own. I could do whatever I wanted. Yeah. And the first day I was there, the first night as I got on campus, I was like living in the dorms and I met this kid wearing like a Coma de Garcon tee, like a polo. And we started talking about clothes because I could tell he was in clothes. So he was talking about how he wanted to have like a brand and stuff. And I kind of already had like that same idea in my head. So something about like meeting this kid, it just like kind of like sparked it again in my head that like I still wanted to do that, but I haven't taken any action, you know? So I started going right away. I started taking like, I was working at Jimmy John's. I got a job like right away on campus at Jimmy John's and it was terrible. What's Jimmy John's? Oh, uh, you don't know, it's like Subway kind of. Okay. Like yeah, we don't, we don't have that out here. That must be an East Coast thing. Yeah. So how far away are you in Canada? Uh, I mean, I live in, I live north of Vancouver in Squamish, which is about an hour north of Vancouver and Vancouver's maybe 40 minutes from the border. So, like, I could drive to Seattle in maybe three and a half hours or so. Okay. I mean, I'm in the States all the time because I go to L.A. And I actually lived in um, Vermont for a long time when I was younger. So I grew up near um, Niagara Falls. So really? we would go skiing in Vermont. And I never went to Chicago much. Um, maybe a couple times and like I've been in I used to go to New York a lot when I was younger but mainly like New England we spent a lot of time in New England my dad's actually from New Hampshire so he got me and my brother's citizenship so we're kind of lucky that way okay so your mom was from Canada yeah my dad left in the 70s to head like basically to come to Canada to like avoid the Vietnam drama just like draft dodger shit and then met my mom and he stayed and we were all born in Canada but when we were young, he was like, I should just get you guys citizenship because you never know. Like now we can move to the States, work in the States, whatever. So 
That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, how old were you when you lived in the States? Um, I went to school in Vermont, high school, like a prep school. You know, like boarding schools are kind of big in, on the East Coast. Like there's a bunch all over New England. So that was from 90, graduated 98. So probably 96 to 99, I was in Vermont. And then 99, I, so I graduated high school in 98. I lived one more year in Vermont snowboarding and like working at a ski hill. And then 99, uh, it's like this whole long story. I got a bunch of shit. We, like, we were growing dope in our house in Vermont and we got raided. And basically, if I wasn't a citizen, they would have like never let me back in the States and I would have gotten way more trouble. But because I was a citizen, like I somehow got out of it. My my dad's brother was a lawyer from Boston so he helped me out and I got out of it but then I was like I'm not going back to the states so that's when I moved out west to um to this area okay the millennium yeah so how did how did you get into like selling vintage though uh I mean we grew up around it my dad was doing it my whole life and basically his whole life so even when I was young, I was in the warehouses. He would have me work in, you know, like during holidays, March break, whatever. We'd be working with my dad, packing orders and sorting clothes. And and then I guess around early 2000s, probably Jesse got into it pretty heavy, maybe 2001, 2002. He was helping my dad uh, picking. So that was kind of around when eBay started to kick in and he learned a ton about what was going on with specific vintage pieces and like what was worth money. And then, you know, we were always into fashion, but then I guess, yeah. So then he got me into it um, later, later, I guess like 2003, 2004. And then I started coming into the city to pick and do all these picking trips. And like, you know what it's like once you start picking and it's like, you learn all this stuff and it's, it's addicting, right? the thrill of the hunt yeah. so i mean the same yeah. way as everyone and i just kind of had a lucky head start because we grew up with my dad being in it so i had like a pretty good base of knowledge from that but yeah so let's get into uh let's get into your um so you're we're talking about college talking yeah, about so picking. when did you start you know for those of i mean i'm going to intro this podcast but for those that don't know like you are crushing it right now with your brand which is your namesake brand justin metzinger is that how you say it it's Mensinger. Mensinger. Men, yeah Mensinger. um you know i really like the aesthetic it's very clean you've had some good projects come out already you've worked with a few brands right yeah correct i did the so i worked with high snobiety um so they were i think like contacted by foot action to put together a campaign um and I had made a piece for Jeff Cavarlo. So I think he's like a co-founder of High Snowbody. And so I had already had him on Instagram and made him like a Dickies Anorak. So I think Foot Action came to High Snowbody wanting to have a project around, you know, like two people who were reworking stuff. So they called me. And um, so I did the first campaign with Adidas product that Foot Action provided. And then the second one, was a uh, champion so it was kind of like a two-part thing where the first part was like a lookbook and they came to chicago and did like a video and then the second part i was more like the hands-on like event side where they flew me to new york and i got to like basically like 
kind of like speak and then um people were able to like customize like t-shirts there was like a screen printing area and then the girl who got picked got to do like custom patches so that was kind of cool okay. so how so you actually it was an event and you got to get up in front of the whole crowd and speak to everybody how, how <laughs> yeah. was that um i think i kind of coming from like a marketing you know like i just graduated like college like three days before i went to new york oh, so wow. i mean i kind of learned how to speak more like i've been pretty talkative yeah my whole life um get it from my grandpa but the the girl who was um there with me for the event who like the girl designer who got picked didn't want to speak so we had a half hour slot where we were supposed to speak so she only wanted to speak for like five minutes so i had to speak for like 25 <laughs> but I, I just went up there and kind of told my story and I feel like I've been waiting to tell my story. And uh, that was kind of cool. I guess it wasn't really like scalable because it was only the people in person who heard it there. But I was able to kind of like explain how I got into everything more so, I feel like. That's cool. Yeah, I guess in college, you got to present projects to like a whole group of people and they kind of prep you for all that, eh? Yeah, definitely. I feel like I had one one class in particular I think it was public speaking and you kind of had to like in order to get a good grade with our teacher I feel like you had to almost go out there and make yourself vulnerable and like you know like talk about your life a little What's bit on the line yeah that's cool yeah so I mean I feel like doing that helps me be able to like get in front of like 100 people or more and talk yeah. so. I've done a few talks I'm not the best at it, but it definitely helps when people are there vibing on what you're doing, you know, like if yeah. they're vibing, it gives you so much more confidence and so much easier to like get into it. Right. Um, but that's cool, man. So let's, let's talk about the beginning. How did, how did this all start for you? Like so, the, the, the reworking specifically or just designing specifically? So I think really what it started with, but I didn't know at the time was, um, well, where I was at kind of before at Michigan State is I, I started trying to make t-shirts because I realized that was what I wanted to do was like have clothing brand. So that first night I met that kid and then got inspired again to like, you know, kind of follow through and take action on it. And so I started going to Hobby Lobby, getting iron on letters and then started making shirts. I didn't know anything about screen printing. I didn't know like even the heat press. I didn't know anything. I literally just like, how do I put a word onto a blank t-shirt I was ironing felt letters on but taking a step back when I was in high school I worked at Goodwill and I didn't even at the time like buy any clothes the whole time I worked there. I worked there for like two and a half years it almost seemed like nice. like from the time I got my license I got a job like right away so the time I left for Michigan State I was at Goodwill and so I would see tons of donations come in and then I would see if there was like an old Tommy windbreaker that had like a hole in it. It would get, I would be driving the forklift and have to bail up these clothes that would get sent out to like other countries if they were like ripped or stained and couldn't be sold. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's cool to talk about for a sec. So it's interesting. You, well, you obviously know it firsthand because like you're in the back, you were in the back room sorting, right? Yeah, I was taking first, I wasn't old enough to drive the forklift. So I would, literally be outside and like take stuff out of people's trunk and then as I got older I think once I turned 18 before I graduated high school then I was like literally sorting all the bins like full of stuff on with the forklift 
and then yeah. you would have to like sort the clothes and then like hard lines would be like toys or like board games or anything else and like so what people don't know is that i mean most people i think assume that the clothes come in everything goes out to the store right which is like so wrong because how much percent goes into those bales like probably like 50 to 75 percent right i mean there's like a statistic that so so well with that it's kind of like i feel like maybe like yeah like half the stuff maybe gets to the floor but then with that half of it comes back you know what i mean or even more and then gets bailed because if it's sitting out there and they have those tag sales it doesn't sell or like you know someone drops on the ground and it gets all dusty or something like i feel like somehow like a lot of the stuff makes its way in the back and then yeah like i think the statistic recently was like nine out of ten things that are donated like end up not getting sold or like yeah which ends up those bales those bales end up going to the rag house get resorted and then get shipped out to like africa india pakistan places like that so i started to learn how to screen print i started to learn how to sew a little bit that's when i started to learn how to sew because i would get uh actually and i would sew them in the neck on the t-shirts so i'll get blank t-shirts sew the tag in the neck and then screen print and that was basically it and i started i got like a heat press i was like heat pressing hats and then um the next year like the i was putting all the money i was making back into this you know so i needed money because like i had another job i worked at like this convenience store type thing yeah um it, it was terrible it was, it was like on campus uh when i was in school but like the hours were kind of like you would work like three hour shifts sometimes like and it was like minimum wage so i kind of realized that like a lot of the clothes i liked and stuff i was buying on ebay at the time like i would buy like vintage tommy stuff on ebay as a consumer but at a certain point when i was reselling some stuff i was like there's got to be a way to just go out and find this shit and sell it the same way these other people are then i started like skipping class kind of because I knew I was going to transfer back here and I needed money. So I would go where I was at in Michigan. There's like 30 thrift stores within like 15 minutes because Lansing was like, it was like an older city. And I feel like, and then I kind of put my brand on hold. I get back to Illinois. Um, so I, I, I go back home for the summer after the semester's over. So I'm in, I have like three months before I, um, would be transferring to UIC in Chicago. So I'm at my parents' house. Um, this is my mom and my stepdad. Um, my dad passed away when I was a kid. So me and my stepdad have a really good relationship now. And I feel like even as a kid, I could like communicate with and talk to him more so than my mom. Uh, I mean, if I didn't get like a job, I wasn't living in his house. If I was like reselling stuff and like they thought it was kind of just like a hustle. And um, he had my mom like take me cause I wouldn't go. Like he was trying to get me to like work at where they're at. It's all like warehouses. Like, cause they live in the burbs. It's like cornfields and warehouses kind of. So yeah. my mom like, was like get the fuck out of bed. <laughs> like took me to all these warehouses and made me to apply. Oh shit. And I was like, but I was doing the math in my head and I was like $10 an hour minimum wage. That's 40 hours a week, $400, that's $1,600 a month, and you get taxes taken out. I'm like, that's, I can make that money, like, reselling clothes, and then still get an internship, start learning more about clothing, and just, like, figure out how to get myself to the city. 
come like three months later when I started school and they just did like they thought what I was doing was kind of just like me like goofing around and like they didn't see me making a lot of money with my own brand even though the vintage stuff was like making me money he was like just do that on the side like you need a real job or else you're not like living in my house kind of so like I basically woke up one morning I stayed up probably to like 4 a.m reading and I've so I was waking up at like noon because I was still sleeping eight hours but like he wanted me to be waking up like every day like 8 a.m having like a schedule and everything because I feel like that's how he operates kind of well that's just like old mentality man they grew up with different times right like yeah they didn't grow up with these kids who can now go out and like make money on their laptop or like sit on a beach with like internet marketing or it's like such a different mentality and it's hard for a lot of people who didn't grow up like that to get it you know yeah and I like I feel like me and him understand each other now but at the time we kind of had like disagreements and he's actually pretty young so like my mom had me when she was 20 and then he's a year younger than her so like I feel like he kind of understands what I'm doing yeah but um basically kicked me out so I had to like like move um and just like figure my shit out so that summer I was pretty much on my own and I just started going to garage sales um and just like thrifting reselling tons of stuff and um so i did that for a few months and then at the time i've been doing tons of photography the whole time i was at michigan state because i didn't really have like a demand for the clothes i was making but i knew to get good at like marketing my clothes i needed like good photos and a good photographer might cost like a few hundred dollars for like a photo shoot so i got like a camera when i was there and i started taking photos every day and just getting really good so i started school and right away, this kid I went to high school with, he's going to UIC, and I see him outside, and he was like, hey, did you see RSAP Gallery posted today, and they need, like, an intern for photography who knows how to use Photoshop and, like, has a DSLR and, like, just all these requirements and, like, everything they needed is what I had and had nice. been working, like, towards. I had, like, a website, had all my photos on it, so immediately I sent over, like, every, my whole portfolio and then as soon as I got out of class, like, I drove over to RCP, and I was, like, talked to whoever was, like, hiring, you know? And so that kind of was, like, the, the big point for me from, like, going to, like, reselling clothes and, like, making things on my own screen printing to, like, really learning the business and to really be in an environment where, like, things were done at, like, a high-end scale. So, so I got to- did you have, like, a different page that you sold on when you were just reselling? I didn't post, I've still barely posted anything I've been reselling on Instagram at all. I was mainly only going through Grails. Okay. Everything was on Grails. I was barely using eBay. So reselling was all Grails. I didn't talk about it at all. Like people didn't really know I did it. It was kind of just like my side thing. Kind of scene, yeah. So I guess like you can kind of tell that that's that's your background because the way you do run your business and your brand is very professional. It seems like everything's clean. You're always running professional photo shoots. So I guess like all that kind of experience came from RSVP. Yeah, kind of. So like when I was there, I got, I was an intern at first. I was working for free. So in order to like pay my rent and then like be able to work there all the time and go to school, I was having to sell tons of shit. And then also um, 
they were letting me get like a sneaker release every once in a while. So like when the UNC off-white ones came out and stuff like that, I was able to get a pair and just put them on StockX. Like I knew I wasn't supposed to be doing that and I kind of felt bad about it. But like at the same time, I needed money because like yeah, but you got you got to make your money, man. Like if you're yeah, helping, but, out, <laughs> you know, interning is like yeah. big. I know. A lot of companies like, wouldn't I wasn't, make it without having interns, you know. Yeah, so I interned for like three months. And I had to work for free, and I was coming in like there's like three interns. There's like me and two other kids, all the same age, and I was just trying to like prove myself. And like I would come in like as many hours as I could, like anytime they needed me. I was trying to learn everything. Like, I think the other kids only really cared about, like, the photo creative side. That was our role as an intern. But, like, anything they needed me to do, like, I was going to, like, the storage unit, like, shipping out, like, hundreds of pairs of shoes. Like, I was trying to figure out, like, what they were doing with the website. Um, I got hired after the three months at the end of the semester, like, December. So then I went into the new year. And I was still working there. But at that point, they kind of asked me, like, what role I kind of wanted to be in the most. I was like, I just want to learn everything. So the the main manager basically would let me kind of just, like, I was working store sometimes, like, on the sales floor. And I was able to get, like, commission. I was, like, working in the back, helping the people, like, with inventory and, like, shipping stuff and website. I was able to, like, sometimes design, like, tees and stuff. Like, I had one design I had like made and then they got printed and then I was doing tons of photo and the photos for Instagram and the website like product photos um I was just trying to absorb everything I could when I was there but it got to a certain point where like I felt like I had almost like learned everything I could because like everything was very routine and there was like a certain point where like things were stagnating within the company at the time I was there where they weren't like acting fast enough on like getting things produced or like it was just kind of like treading water almost and um right before that happened so this whole time I kind of stopped working on my own brand so I could learn like how to build a proper brand from like them that's what I went into it thinking but I didn't know like they don't I mean they have like shop t-shirts but they don't really produce anything. They just buy stuff wholesale and sell it. You know, like they carry like vape and like fear of God and um, human made and like capital. Like they just buy this stuff. They're not producing it, obviously. And I, like I knew that going into it, but like I thought there would be more I would learn about like clothing itself. And it wasn't really the case. It was more so learning about retail. So what skills um, do you think were the most valuable that you took away from that whole experience? Uh, just like how to present things properly like how to how to like how do you talk to someone on the sales floor when you're selling them like an $800 flannel like how do you do that like what does that transaction look like like what does that yeah. person look like? And, like that comes down to storytelling yeah and, like making well, something you know it has you know for me now with our brand and Frankie it's so much more about the story than it ever was because you're right. Like, how do you sell someone $800 jacket? Like, why is it $800? What's the story behind it? What's the design inspiration, you know? Yeah. I think that was the biggest takeaway was like the marketing side. And, yeah. but how do you make the marketing side from a business standpoint, like manifest? Like what, what do the photos look like? Like what is the, the store layout? Like what is the overall, like, identity of the brand like trying to figure that out like 
what things get approved by Don C and what things don't. You know what I mean? Like there was some times where we would have designs where like for the shop tees, you know, where yeah. he wouldn't want to produce them because they didn't have a story behind them. Exactly how you said. So like there was those moments too where like kind of studying how everything was like getting approved from afar because like Don wasn't there, you know what I mean? He was in LA, but being in the store, you would know like what got approved or what didn't or like what collabs we were having or who was going to be in the store. Um, and just kind of like observing how everything moved. Like I remember like, I think like one of the first weeks I was there, like Jay Balvin came in yeah. and we had to do like photos with him in the back. I had no idea who he was. I was like, but like, there's all these people outside like staring through the glass and like screaming and stuff. And I, and it was just like, you could kind of study how people moved or like how people carried themselves. The people who worked there and then people came in, like we had a Air Force 100 event. Uh, there was like an old Marc Jacobs store on the street. It's like a big glass uh, storefront. It's like a corner and they rented out for events a lot, like different brands do. So we had like Travis Scott was in town. So like one morning I was in the store and I didn't really realize it was him at first. And so I was just in the store. There's only like six people in there. It's like his manager and like security or something. And he was just very like calm and like kind of quiet. And he was dressed very like casually, you know? And then we got to like see him perform though. It was like a private show almost. Like people who worked for like RSVP were there and then maybe people at Nike or something who were part of that event. Yeah. But it was kind of cool to see like, the see up close how people carry themselves and how there's like different sides to people you know like when they're performing versus like how are they acting in terms of like how they're planning out their moves yeah do you find that uh i find it's interesting to see that as well but some people you'll see that they are who they are on stage in real life and then there's some people that are so different than who they are on stage and it's like yeah plan i mean it's all planned out really but you're right it's like it's very interesting to see that behind the scenes man it is um i that's, got that's like cool dude who else did you get to see come through like uh you know dominic fike no okay so he kind of kind of got big earlier this year but like this is after i quit so i quit like a year ago and then they had me come back in last up like this previous fall and like screen print tees for him in the shop it was like a meet and greet and then uh he had like his whole like I guess band I don't know it's like multiple people kind of like his whole team yeah and then uh so I like got to like print tees like people could come in and say like where they wanted his like logo and then we had like RSVP tees and then I was like live screen printing there and then like kind of made like a few pieces for like his band and stuff too it i feel like it's just interesting to see like the other side like i feel like mu music and clothing are so intertwined so to see how musicians move i feel like people who have brands and like design have to kind of like look at them too as a reference point on like how do you release things like some people put out singles but some people hold albums for two years and then drop stuff 
Um, so that's one thing I've been looking at recently is like, I know you interviewed Hypedelic. It seems like mostly he just kind of makes something and drops it. I was doing that for a while. And then recently I had been asked to do like projects that are bigger, like obviously like the Adidas and Champion stuff. But then I did my own collection and I did a pop of a hotel like downtown. And I held those pieces for a while and I like posted them, but I didn't release them. And then I, I like released them in person. You couldn't get them online. I released them in person at the pop of everything. All six pieces of that collection sold within like two hours. So it was like weird, like, you know, like delaying gratification sometimes um, and doing things bigger. Yeah, it, it is. You're right. We, we used to drop really frequently on Frankie. And then eventually we decided to hold out and do like, we'll put out product if it's older product consistently. But then when we drop new product, we wait till we have it like a good group of it. We wait till we've got marketing materials for it. Um, you know, now we're trying to like produce videos for it and just have like more of the story, but also like a bigger drop with bigger presence. Right. Cause it is like, it's that hype mentality. You know, people want to, you know, if it's going to sell out, they want it more for one thing, which is crazy. But um, yeah, there's just so many different ways to go about it. You're right. Even with like, like skating and snowboarding and stuff. Now people, some people will like hold out on a project and drop it. Like, like they used to drop it once a year. And then there's people that are just putting out content like every single day, just continually leaking yeah. it out. Right. Exactly. And it's like, it's hard to tell what is more effective. Because there's something about the supply and demand of like randomly posting something for sale where it's like, oh shit, this might be gone an hour. Where then there's like, a, there's not as much of an element of surprise when you announce you're gonna drop something for a month and you drop it. And then like, if it doesn't sell out right away, I feel like people go on the site and then they're like, oh, it's sitting here. Like no one else, I don't want it either. So then I feel like there's that element. And then there's like the in-person element too. Um, of just like, I feel like when you have a pop-up, you just sell way more shit than you do online because like people think online is the way to go. I have friends who make like glasses. Um, he makes clocks too. I had one in here, but I was like packing already. So I took it down, but he, I had a pop-up and he was there on his laptop the same day as me. And this was right like when Corona started like earlier this month. So like the pop-up was way slower than normal. And so like he sold more stuff than me in like two hours just online doing a drop than I did like in person in a good location. So it's so like hit or miss, but it's I think true, man. And have you ever thought about the hype culture and faking the hype? Well, I'm not like saying you would ever fake it, but like, I guarantee you there's people out there that fake the hype culture. So like brands will put product out and then if it's not selling out, they'll just be like, okay, take it offline. Market sold out. Like give it to Bobby, tell Bobby to go put it on Grailed or stock X for this much money to like drive the market. Right. Oh, dude. I know. Like I, I think a lot of t-shirt brands lie about their shit being sold out. i never do that. I've never put anything that's sold out that's not sold out because like I only have one of it. So it's like, why would I spend like 20 hours on a piece and put it on my website and then say it's sold out? It's like, it's no, going to sell when it sells. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think, I think that's where I differ from other at least like within the few people I know who like, they don't make clothes, like people I'm referencing, but like my friend who dropped the glasses, 
his product is consistent. You know what I mean? So like he can make it after he sells it because it's like he makes everything himself and it's going to be the same. So like he could put that he has 50 and maybe like he doesn't sell out 15. He could take it out. He's not done this, but I'm saying like, I understand there is people who are like that. We're like brands could do that. And it, 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 it's all psychology. Marketing is psychology, right? So it will, it would work. You know, like, I feel like it would work. And I don't know, has Supreme ever done that? I don't know. I'm not calling out Supreme on it. But, like, I feel like they they could or other brands like that could do that. And then once somebody sees it on StockX or grailed for a certain price, they just all of a sudden associate it with that price. And it just drives this weird economy. Yeah. I mean, I have this conversation a lot with people because I feel like from the outside, people think if you like produce something and you make it like low, um, you know, like basically hard to get like one of one of us, like this is automatically going to become more valuable or sell out. And I just like, I've been doing this for a while. Like, you know, like vintage too, like you could put up a hundred things on eBay or wherever. And like, maybe like within a week, like 20 of them sell. I feel like, it's kind of so hard and it's like even if you put all this stuff sold out is that necessarily going to make the next batch sell it no it's like there's definitely a psychological side but I think you have to be authentic about it too and like I'm not maybe speaking for myself at least like I'm not worried about like stuff sitting on my site or not selling out right away because like I know if I just keep making stuff and like over time like there's going to be more demand and like my prices have risen since I've started but I've definitely sat on things for like a year before. Like I had the pair of shorts I made like literally like a year ago and I just sold them at a pop-up last month, but I never like changed a price. I think if anything, I might've upped the price and then I sold them and it's just like kind of being patient sometimes, but it does suck too sometimes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, dude, we've, we've seen it, man. I, we've had so many drops. Like I tell this to my team all the time because sometimes I've done this for so long that I get it. And if we do a drop and we do something creative and it doesn't sell, it's like sometimes you just got to bite that bullet and be like, fuck, let's move on to the next creative project. Cause we know like, you know, if we're, if we're hitting like four out of five, we're pretty stoked or even three out of five that are like, that go off and you, you know, a couple, two projects might be sleepers, but three are killing it. You're like, you can't win every one. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, how do you make sense of it, though? It's like, you know what I mean? When that when you have a drop that flops, you sit there and you think about it, and you're like, oh, shit, like, what I do wrong with the design or something? And then you have, like, good feedback on it, maybe. You know what I mean? Like, comparable to the things that sold on, like, Instagram or whatever. And then it's like, well, what the fuck went wrong? Like, was, you know, what was it? I don't know. Totally, dude. You just don't know. But that's, like, where you got to just, you got to, like, train your own mind to not go so deep on it and just get it's it's like using your your losses as fuel for your next win versus like letting it drag you down right because you know not everything that you think is rad everyone's going to think is rad if you get if you're hitting most of them out of the park you're, you're you're stoked you know um like like there's been tons that we've flopped on that we thought were cool or we tried to like kick our customer base into like a little bit of a different direction and they're like weren't feeling it or um that shit happens but it's all part of the creative process i think man you know you just got to keep building and figuring out what works but also again stay true to what you want to do too because that's kind of like the artistic battle right like 
yeah as an artist like doing what you want to do and then doing what you know is going to make you money sometimes they don't align perfectly yeah that's kind of a blessing sometimes though when what you think is going to work doesn't work and then what you what you truly want to do that you're scared to do works that's kind of where i hit recently where like had a pop-up with my own collection my second collection so it was six pieces of clothing and then one wall piece and so that was like the kimono flannel sweater it was all like higher more like elevated not as colorful um all my own quotes which is what i want to be doing is like my own ideas about life so i did that and that sold out in two hours in my pop-up so like wow like that's crazy like i worked on this stuff for like over a month almost you know, I had like some of these ideas in my head for a long time and finally executed on them and it went well. I was kind of scared to put them out. And then following that one up, I did a, just like Apple, like a Cobain, like a I Love New York, like pop culture things like I was doing before and that all flopped. So like where I'm at right now is kind of like what I truly was like going for from the beginning was like finding a place where I had like the resources and time to not have to drop everything as soon as I make it and I could do collections and have no reused graphics, only my own graphics, like no logos or anything, just like yeah. my quotes. And in a way, like taking that last loss that the last pop up or the last like drop I did where it was like those reworked pop culture pieces, it kind of like guided me to like keep doing what's most true to me that I really want to do. And that's right now at least like I want to do another collection of quotes so that's what I'm working on nice yeah it's funny we do I mean Frankie we're like so logo driven and brand driven um and it's not like whatever was like this is what we wanted to do we we kind of set out to like rework and we wanted to save clothes from the landfill and it came from like an environmental standpoint but also like doing something cool within fashion because we had the vintage background but it just kind of morphed into that because that's what like the market was doing at the time. But now I, I do feel like the market is moving away from that. I think you're right. Like it's rad when you can create something that has, that just has your soul in it versus like somebody else's, you know, hard work and branding or something like that. Um, so yeah, like definitely we've been trying to work on stuff like that too. But again, it's like when your customer base is so accustomed to something, you got to like kind of move them into like a different realm sometimes or like yeah. roll with your customer base too. And that's also important. Like if you're in this for a long time, your customer changes throughout their life. Right. And so a lot of successful brands like do that. They grow with their customer base so that like, you know, they can get in when they're 14, but then when they're 29, they're still finding a piece that they like at that age. Right. Um, and that just like comes with growth and time. and It's tricky, but um, I want to talk about like, reworking as like the art for a bit here and like take us back to like the first time you did it and you know what was it like and what was the first piece you made and how was it getting used to the machines and everything like that okay so this is perfect because it ties back to like kind of where i left off with rcp so i'm there i'm like exposed to all these people but i'm also exposed to tons of clothes and brands and like really quality garments and as soon as new products coming in for a new season, I'm like the first person to see it because I'm taking a photo. So the first two brands that really changed my outlook on clothing and made me realize you could do cut and sew reusing stuff, we had a brand called ReadyMade from Japan. 
they make uh like they take army tents and like postal bins like really heavy duty like vintage canvas things and they made them into like parkas um bags like really really quality women's like handbags uh backpacks and all these things were like seven grand and like the quality was like immaculate but it was an old army tent you know what i mean like there was no denying it it's like an old faded like army green thing but it literally looked like it could be like higher end than a louis vuitton bag and so when i saw that i was like wow this is crazy like i didn't know there was like you could just take old stuff and make new stuff i've never really seen it and then we got another brand that same time period this was like springtime so i got hired like fall before I, I had been there for a little bit we got this brand called long journey from la we only had them for like that season and then they dropped and i had taken photos that they reposted so start off where the, you, the, you had those three brands come in right yeah so i saw those three brands and i was starting to cut and sew so i started trying to figure out how to cut and sew and at the time i was trying to launch a new brand because <laughs> i thought i had learned enough from rsvp to like launch like i wanted to get rid of the ads thing i was doing it was mostly tees and like lower end and i wanted to like kind of get into cutting so so i started going to all these fabric places around the city and it's kind of simultaneous with these me seeing these brands but like i was going to do traditional cutting so so i couldn't find like any of the materials i wanted to work with here because i wanted to do like tees and hoodies and there's like no fabric district or like garment district here so i couldn't find anything so i was talking to my friend and he was like hey like i know you want to like sew and you want to practice and you're trying to do cut and sew i had done one one vest so it was like a burlap type like and you know like almost like a duck but it was kind of thinner and it okay. looked like carhartt colored and it was literally like a tactical vest and it was like nothing was reused it was cut and sewn um so I, I launched JDM. It was like my initials JDM. So it was like three T's. Uh, I kind of took like the RSVP format, like how the, originally they had like a black, white, and then like a, another logo T where it's black, but with neon green lettering. Okay. So I launched three T's. They were like black, white, and then an orange one. It was like a simple logo. It looked like the Stussy logo. It was like a handwritten, like, it was my initials of the words because I was trying to like get closer to like being a real designer kind of at the time. It was a terrible idea, but <laughs> I did this. And then I had like these corduroy hats I got embroidered uh, in the city. And then I got a lot of pins on eBay. I took the idea from the ready-made jacket I had saw where it was like the army tent thing, but then they had all these pins right here. So I got like a dozen hats made. All of them had different pins on them. Cause I got a big lot of pins on eBay and just put random pins on there. So I, I dropped this. It was a, the tactical vest, three T designs and basically like two hats, but the one was with the pins. And like the only thing that did well was the hat with the pins. And I was like, well, what the fuck? So I was like, I like the hat with the pins. But like, and what was your rollout for this? Like, how did you roll oh, this man, up? And I, I put a lot of effort into it. Like I like, had my friend who worked at RCP like we did like photos like almost like similar to how we do with product photos and I just like did all this like photoshop work where I had like really cool photos I did a whole video like I had like a Ronin like a stabilizer yeah and so like I took like this video in like the woods and stuff and it was kind of like oh I actually I think I had one other piece in the collection but I, it wasn't technically the collection it was like I had a vintage Eddie Bauer like faded 
army green shirt I had thrifted. I took another shirt, it was like denim, and I like made like patches and sewed it on top. So it was nice. like Junior Watanabe looking kind yeah, of patchwork. Yeah. So, so I took this video with, you know, like the vest, that piece, um, and the tees and the woods and it like, and then there's like a BMX track. And I just tried to like bring in all the elements like my childhood that like were me um, and kind of like tell the story with it, like the outdoors colorways almost. And just like, cause in Michigan, when I was a kid, all I did was ride my bike around all day. Like my dad and my uncle like raced dirt bikes. Like we lived in the country. Yeah. Where I was born until I was like five. I was like in the boonies. Like it was like guns and dirt bikes, you know? So, so this first collection was kind of like uh you you weren't fired up on it. It didn't work out. I was trying to uh, like dive into myself and give people myself more than I did with ABNS, but like I don't think people got it and like the quality just wasn't there. So like it just flopped. And then uh, I put all this effort into rolling it out too, and it just flopped. So I took what I learned from like what sold, and it was like the hats with the corduroy pins. So I'm like, obviously, there's something to like this. Each of them was unique and like reusing, but I didn't think I could like cut and sew the way I had seen like the ready-made shit. I mean, there was like eight grand, of, and I'm like asking people why is it so expensive in the store, and they're like, look at the construction, and I like didn't fully understand because I didn't really sew it a lot, and I was like, oh, okay, whatever. Then I started sewing and I'm like, damn, this is hard as hell. Yeah. So, but my friend was like, why don't you practice with some of the vintage stuff you have lying around? Cause you don't, you can't find good fabric and you don't want to like be buying it online. And then I was afraid of like buying some really expensive fabric and then like messing it up. Yeah, totally. He's like, why don't you practice? Simultaneously, my manager, who's like, I had become really good friends with on the creative team was like, Hey, like if you made something like, he kind of knew me and like what my aesthetic was and like my vintage stuff. And like, he was like, if you made something it was almost like a ready-made or long journey, but like more accessible. And like the way we both agreed, the way the long journey was executing on the hoodies and stuff. It like, it, it looked bad in the product photos on our website because it was all dark colors and like dyes. And it was hard for like the camera to like process what it looked like in person because they would flip the sweatshirt material inside out. So it was like backwards. It had a cool ass texture, but you yeah. wouldn't get that on a photo. You had to see it in person to understand like the quality, but the shape was off. Like, I don't know anyone who wants to wear like a t-shirt sweatshirt. So like they were trying to go too far. Like how you talked about earlier, like bringing your audience with you right away from the beginning from photography. I had learned like, there's a really big photographer trash hand in the city. And I, I took like his online Skillshare class. I had actually ran into him one time in person too. Um, one thing he always talked about with photography is like, there's like cheat codes where like, if you take a photo of something super iconic that like people just have ingrained in their subconscious mind, like a photo of like a, a little kid holding a red balloon, he said, then like it allows your audience to like already connect to your idea, but then also see how you display it kind of. Does that make sense? So like, yeah, totally. I, I applied it to clothes when I started reworking. I was like, these people took the concept of reworking and took it way too far. Like there was too avant-garde, you know, yeah. like the t-shirt sweatshirt thing. And I was like, why don't they just make normal hoodies? Like, I just want to see a normal hoodie that's made out of hoodies. But I didn't do that at first. It was so many things 
in my world they're connected at once like the understanding of goodwill and rcp is like high end low end reusing but then i wanted to make clothes i had all this vintage stuff i was working in the in the floor like on the sales floor at rcp too and i was wearing these um sweatpants that i cut the legs off so i had like sweat shorts because i didn't like basketball shorts like the pockets were all flimsy and stuff so i was wearing these sweat shorts like every day and i was like I'm working at RCP, like, I can't be wearing, like, the same dirty-ass sweatshorts. So what I did was I took, like, four crew necks I had, and I was like, you know, like, I'm just going to make a pair of sweatpants out of these sweatshirts. So I made it for myself. So I had a pair of pants to wear to work. And then basically I just wore them in, and, like, I wore them around the city to, like, like there's a place called congruent space and they had like an art show kind of and there's like a lot of people there in the clothes and they just like kept like commenting me on them in the summer and so i posted them on grailed i think and then they sold within like two days for like over a hundred and then um i started making a duffel bag because in middle school we had a sewing class and then as our final project we had this whole kit and it showed you how to make a duffel bag and everyone in the class made a duffel bag in like sixth or seventh grade so I still have this duffel bag and I was going to LA like a week from, from this point. Um, so I started making a duffel bag for my carry on. So I was reusing denim. This was the second piece I made. So I'm still working at RCP and I start to see the other brands. So I was like kind of emulating it, but kind of coming at it from my own place. So I took apart this duffel bag. I'm like, if I sewed this in seventh grade, I should be able to sew this now. So I, I just used the pattern. I patched all denim. I found ribbing at this um, fabric warehouse in Pilsen. It's like a huge, like three layers, like Costco size. It's like discount, terrible quality fabrics, but they had like this orange ribbing. So I got the ribbing for the handle of the duffel. I made a duffel and I started working on it after I get home from work or something. It's like the summer, so I'm not in school. I'm working all the time. I start making it and I take a photo, post on Instagram of like it laid out the next day they had released the polo collection at rsvp is my day off i went there to buy a windbreaker because i really like polo this is after they dropped that snow beach stuff it all sold out and then they dropped the cp93 and i wanted a piece because i thought it was going to sell out because like the snow beach stuff sold out and the windbreakers went from like 300 to like a thousand so yeah. i was like damn like i need to get the cp93 stuff it might like be worth something too and like i wanted it for myself i was in the store and someone was looking for a duffel at rsvp and i wasn't working so I, I was talking to him and i was trying to help him even though like i wasn't working because someone went in the back to get something for another customer and there's like no one in there so he wanted a duffel he's going to new york but the easy one we had was too big and like the undercover one was like big too and I was making this little carry-on one like the night before. I had it halfway made. And I showed him, I was like, hey, like I'm working on a duffel bag. But I didn't really plan on selling it to him. Like we were just talking about duffel bags. So I showed him a photo of it halfway done, like n like not even like constructed. Yeah. And he, he was like, how much do you want for it? And I was like, oh man, like, I don't know. Cause I didn't know how long it was gonna take me to finish. I didn't know anything about the construction. Like the quality wasn't that good. And I've never really like sold anything. I, I might have not sold those shorts yet. It might have been like a little, I might have posted them the next week. So I had no idea what to price my work at. So I was like, I don't know, like $85. And he was like, no, like you should be charged on 150. He was like, if you have it done tomorrow, I leave Friday. It was like Wednesday. 
He's like, if you have it done tomorrow, I'll give you a hundred dollars. So I was like, oh shit, okay, I'm about to go home. But you right just now. told me 150. <laughs> yeah, well, like he's like, I'll meet you in the middle. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. That's cool. So I was like, okay, fine with me. I was only gonna charge you 85. So I go home. I finish his duffel bag. I take photos of it. I meet him the next day, like on my lunch break at Pop Belly down the street. He gives me a hundred dollars, and I was like, damn, like that's crazy. Like within like just making these two pieces. Like they hit, like I got so much feedback so fast, like just being out in the city and like being like in the shop too at RSVP. And I was like, people like this stuff. So I was like, damn, okay. So I sell the first two pieces and I mean, I only got like, like at the time, like I was selling. What are you working on? You just got like a home machine at this point or what? So at this point I first started out with like a $50 singer when I was selling the tags and the ADNS stuff. But then I had knew I wanted to get in cut, into cut and sew. So I saved up some money and then I got like a juki, like a single uh, straight needle. Yeah. Uh, there's this girl, Sheila, the designer is her Instagram. She made Chance the Rapper's overalls that he's like iconically seen wearing. And so she's in the city. Um, so I had like talked to her a few times and I asked her like, what sewing machine should I get if I'm like trying to like make stuff from scratch? She told me to get a juki. So I got it and I like, all I was doing was like I did the vest. I didn't have a serger or anything, so I'm just using the jukey, like trying to figure out what the hell like seams are and like how to like do patterns. So I did everything on the jukey. Like the first pair of sweatpants were bad, like they were not serge or anything, you know. And like I didn't have grommet things. It was bad, but I sold those pieces and I'm feeling pretty confident. <laughs> so I go to LA and then I come back. And at the time, a lot was, like, happening at the store because they were going to open an L.A. store. Or they, they just opened the L.A. store. So they were trying to put all the resources there, kind of, it felt like. And, yeah. like, that, the Chicago store is kind of weird. And, like, there was, like, just animosity within at RCT. Like, there's, like, people kind of arguing. So, like, the last day I was there, I just started selling my cut-and-sew pieces. And, I don't know, things were kind of, like, getting tense between people and so like I, there's kind of like an argument a little bit um but it wasn't my argument it was like other people were arguing but I kind of like was speaking on behalf of everyone and I did I just felt like I was gonna get fired or I was gonna <laughs> quit like we all went to our lunch break and we were out and I was like guys this is my last day I was like I feel like I, I just, I'm just gonna follow the cut and sew stuff and like keep selling vintage I, like, I don't even know how I'm gonna pay my rent you know what I mean but I'm just like I'm just gonna do this like I've already done this before I just take like a leap like when I got kicked out yeah I was like man I'm just gonna start making cut and sew pieces every single day and just hope that like half of them sell and I can like make my rent so I just that's what I did I was on summer break I quit and I just I, I put in my two weeks and then like the manager was like don't come back in <laughs> So I I just started I just start cutting sewing like I'm just up all the time like 24 hours a day basically I just start like making stuff and then I start getting people in the city who know me just like asking me to make custom pieces so like I can get the money like almost up front it's like guaranteed sales so I'm just doing tons of commissions like I just hit the ground running with commissions and, and like the great. commissions people were coming to you with ideas or were you kind of saying like let's do this together or was it like how did that work 
it was kind of like a lot of times they had like a concept. So like they would be like, I want an all Chicago Bulls pair of like the sweat shorts you did. Like they would send me a photo of something I made and be like, I want this, but I want this team or like, I want this, but I want it this color. And so I, I made a lot of shorts at first and then like, or it'd be like, they saw the duffel bag I made. They're like, I want the duffel bag bigger. I want it black denim with like a green strap. Yeah, so I nice. just started making stuff for people and I'm like living off of it and I'm still thrifting. Plus you're probably kinda, like honing in your, your skills at this point on the sewing machines and stuff, right? Yeah. So like, that was the blessing. I didn't like doing the commissions, but I was like, man, I'm getting paid to learn right now. Yeah. Like I was putting all the, like, I was watching tons of YouTube videos. I'm like, there's not a lot about cut and sew on YouTube. I feel like, so like you have to like dig through these videos and find like these videos of like factories that they post in China. And it's all in like different, le like, you know, like you can't Google it. So like you have to like click that video and then another video would come up. And I was like looking at all these videos when they were producing like sweatshirts or denim or whatever. And I was like, like trying to figure out like what machine are they using you know what I mean like I didn't know anything so I got like a serger like pretty much right away and then over time I got like a walking foot and like a cover stitch and like I just kept like doing commissions and then my big like kind of point when I saw that it was like really viable was I had a pop-up in the city like I'd saved up like a 30 pieces I had made and I was like, I want to have a pop-up. So I post on Instagram, like, hey, where should I have a pop-up? And, like, people would, like, answer in the box. And a lot of people said congruent space, which is a, where I was thinking of. It, it's, like, an event space in the city. But this new store opened I'd never heard of. It was called 2048. And so the owners, like, hit me up right away. And, like, I started to hear about it from other people, like, DMing me on Instagram, like, hey, have you ever gone there? Whatever. So I was like, whatever, I'll give it a shot. So, like, they gave me like a decent price to run out the store and have a pop-up and it was like a really nice store like the building was like newly renovated the ground level storefront all glass windows and stuff so i just brought in everything i had and then i just like i was like i'm having a pop-up so it was crazy because like so many people came out and it was on a friday which is like a lot of people had work um it was in like april which is like a weird time it was like still rainy here so like the last like three hours where it was like noon to like 11 or something like the whole night after people got off work like 7 p.m starts raining but somehow wow. like it was filled the whole time nice. and i made like a decent amount of money i didn't sell everything i had i only sold like like a fifth of it like i only sold like five or six pieces i think but i knew it was working because like the ones i did sell were like my higher price pieces and then this lady came in, posted it on her Instagram, not even on her story, on her feed, who used to work for Jordan. And then so, like, I go home kind of feeling disappointed because I think I only sold, like, four or five pieces, and I had, like, 30. But then I get an order for, like, this jacket, and it was, like, the most expensive thing I had at the time. And I look at the address, and it was, like, Beaverton, Oregon. So I, like, looked the lady's name up, and she works for Nike. And I was like, man, like, someone from Nike – who works at the headquarters like bought my stuff i was like damn that's crazy so like there wasn't like a big breakthrough i feel like even those first two pieces i i sold one for like 100 and the other for like 120 then i had to ship i got like 200 bucks and i spent a lot of time making them but i could tell it was like working so i just kept going with it because like 
at the, I kind of felt like I didn't have anything to lose, you know, like after I quit, like I had to figure out how the hell I was going to like pay my bills. So I was just yeah. like working like, like crazy. But that's how it is. You know, a lot of times people, people give up because they don't, it doesn't like take off. Like it never just goes straight up. It's like, it takes exactly. hard work and it takes like dedication and you got to stick to it. And there's moments where like things, things happen and you jump to the next level and then you jump to the next level. It's like, but if you, but I feel a lot of people give up too soon, you know? And sometimes like that, that jump doesn't happen for a long time, you know? Cause you're like, you got to stick it out. Right. Like with Frankie, yeah. I mean, we were like at least two years in before, like it really started to like take off. Like we were making a little bit of money, but we were probably, it was times we weren't making money because we were, we transitioned from like F as in Frank, which was all vintage to then Frankie, which was like half rework and it st starting a whole new brand name and then label and then having to fully build that from scratch. So like, yeah, those first two years were like slow, but then, you know, like, like it happens with you, someone in Nike buys it. Like we had moments where these plateaus happen and you're like, shit, like, okay, like this person just posted about it or like now, like, um, we got contacted by these brands that want to work and you're like, holy shit, these brands are like coming to us now. And then it like, that's when you really start to get hyped and like take it, you know? Yeah. That's How right. Did, here, dude. When you started Frankie, who was making this stuff? Like who was cutting sewing? So we had, uh, we hired Sarah, who's our creative director, but she's not a sewer or a designer. So we, we had a brand called snap, which was reworked before Frankie but that was just stuff that we put in the stores. Like we would just supplement the women's section in the two stores with this rework product. And we've been doing it for like probably 10, 12 years. So we had a team of like two or three women working for us, designing and, and sewing. Originally when we first started doing it, it was all like outsourced. Like we'd come up with patterns or designs and we'd like have people do it from home. But then once we got Frankie, the team started probably with like two, three people. And then now we're like, geez, like 10 or 15 full time. We have like a production manager, a head sewer, full time cutters, somebody who bundles because bundling, obviously, you know, it's like getting all the, getting what you're going to put together to make the garment is the most important thing because if you get the colors wrong or like the materials wrong, it won't, won't work and won't sell. And yeah, now it's like a, it's crazy how big the operation is. Um, so I want to talk about that too. Like, you know, people don't get it when as a reworker, they don't get how much more work it is to do what we do than to like, say, make something in China. Right. <laughs> you probably have yeah. this conversation with people and I think now it's becoming more accepted and more appreciated because of like the sustainability movement. And that's like a big thing now. How long have you, how, how long have you been doing this by the way? Like what, what was that? Say when, when so, was that pop up? Um, the pop up was April twenty. I want to say twenty eighteen, but it might have been no, might have been it might have been last year, like a year ago. Okay, so I want I want to say that's wrong though. I could. So yeah, could so like you you got into years. this like a couple years, and yeah. it's kind of been like on that rise of like the sustainability movement. But it's like it, it's going like this, like it's going crazy like you know everybody wants in all the brands want to work with you now and like all the brands want to jump have sustainability initiatives they're pushing and 
I mean, to be honest, like what we're doing is like way more sustainable than most of what everyone's doing. But um, yeah, so just speak on that. Like how, how much more work goes into reworking than new production? I mean, I feel like within reworking, there's like levels to it, you know, like, um, like if I want to do something simple, I usually just avoid it because I feel like the more detailed I get, the more I can sell it for. And like, I'm kind of a perfectionist too, you know? So like, I, I feel like for me, it probably takes longer than like for you almost. Oh, for sure. For sure. Because like, I just get too crazy with it sometimes, you know, like, like if I have an idea, like this park I did, I spent damn near like two weeks working on this thing, like on and off. But I mean, I sold it for over a thousand. So like to me, it was worth it. But like, if I was looking at it, if I was paying someone to sell it, I mean, like it would probably have been like kind of stupid. <laughs> so <laughs> because when, like, with your process, do you, you go through the whole pattern making process or do you freestyle certain garments or how do you do it? Um, so I, I try to freestyle everything, but obviously like use like the pattern of like what the garment is going to be, but like freestyle within that piece. But I have done like kind of probably what you do where like, so I do have like one time I did like a, two times I did like a size run of hoodies where they all look the same. Cause I had like the same color material. So I made like pattern pieces where like they were scaled between a thermometer and XL. So at the finished product like the grays might have been slightly different and the blues but it was like a gray and blue hoodie and there was a small through an xl and then i had like my logo on it i did that once but i didn't see like more like almost part of me felt like because i was doing it myself i felt like it wasn't even that more efficient because it was kind of a pain in the ass to like get the same cuts out of like the same piece yeah so then i i just said fucking i went back to freestyling everything <laughs> so literally your method is like you take your clothes you throw them on the table you're like you have a good idea of like how a hoodie works now because you've made a bunch of them and yeah. you will like freestyle cut your 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 patchwork pattern yeah and, then and how does it I'll... how does that work for seam allowancing and stuff like well because at the end I kind of like, I patch it to fit the, I have like the cutout of the front, you know what I mean? Or like the sleeve and I freestyle it all until it fills the area. You know okay, what I mean? Yeah, I see, yes. making it. Yeah, so that's how like we made one for my son recently and we kind of like used one of his hoodies to size it and then we just freestyled it out like that. Um, so I definitely see how it's, you could do it but yeah it, it is tricky it because takes, like and your stuff looks very finished and like professional so like you must have the good eye now of like how those because the seam allowances fuck you up when you're patchworking and you can get bunching and like uh bunching up of weird stuff because especially when you're doing like all kinds of diagonal cuts it's not all straight lines right oh yeah so that's tricky I, man I so kudos when i did the patterns like I know exactly what you're saying because you would add the seam allowance, but it'd be on an angle. So like when it would get sewed, it might come out like this on the ends. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Because the way it's lined up. And then yeah. certain points of your garment will look puckered or, or weird if it's not sewn properly. So yeah, I mean, you must've had some of that issues and then like just figured out how to work around it or what? I mean, yeah. Cause I feel like I just went back to freestyling everything. Cause I'm like, I could 
scale it and make the pattern but i was like i kind of like having it like where i can like lay it out like a painting you know like kind of move shit around and see how it looks and it obviously takes way more time but i like enjoy the process of doing it more so than like like i put a lot of stuff on grail and like you know, like reselling vintage is like consistent, but I don't find like that same level like fulfillment. And then if I do do a, a rework piece, it's like simpler. I might be able to get it done faster. So like, I almost feel like the things that sell better for me are the ones where like, like that parka, I had to price it like almost $1,400 because like I've fucking wasted so much time working on it. Cause I would like, I was really trying to figure out how the hell to make a parka. And I was yeah. like trying to like, do everything I could to make it exactly how I would want to wear it when it was done, you know? Oh, that's rad, dude. So speaking of scaling and stuff, like what, what's your future plans? Where are you going to go from here? I mean, I think everything to answer this goes back to what we talked about earlier about demand, like supply and demand. Like right now, if I'm making everything myself, even if I did make it more efficient by doing the simpler pattern, I feel like I still don't necessarily have like the demand yet to like, I could make four of those or I could make like two freestyle ones. And like, I might make the same amount of money or put similar amount of time or like, it might take me as long to sell them. Yeah. So like right now I'm just kind of trying to like, not only hone in my craft more and kind of like experiment with different designs because I still do want to reuse like logos and like, things sometimes that I find like I have uh this like juice world tea I got and I know that thing's gonna be rare as hell because he died so quickly because I just feel like I, I found it on eBay randomly and I, I like his music and there's just certain things I find when I'm thrifting like I have like these crazy pair of Tupac pants and I, I forgot I had them because I made a Tupac hoodie it was like to say like basically like somehow like screen printed like on denim wild I found a pair of, found a pair of these before but like certain things like that i'm like damn like i just have to make it into something because they're like a size 50 they're never gonna like i'm not gonna resell yeah them. like gonna people buy. don't wear pants that big like they did in those days you know yeah so like i think i still want to reuse stuff and experiment with that and, and almost use that as a way to like build my demand you know like more people see my work as i make more things but like once I have that demand, obviously, like, I want to get to the point where I can scale beyond myself and have it almost how you do, where, like, you have a team of people. And I, I kind of understand the logistics side of it from, like, when I worked at Goodwill, of, like, having the bins of, like, you know what I mean? Like, different material, like, having yeah. it all sorted out, like, combining that, like, th like, the thrift side of it with, like, my understanding of, like, how, like, a normal sewing factory works from, like, studying it online and um you know just like once i have a demand to be able to like make size runs and stuff it is tricky man um scaling has been our hardest hurdle you know like we were always on a level producing quite a lot of product but we're trying to like bump that up now because our big thing too is like we want to create like tiers of what we do so like there's like a base level product and there's like a better level of product that like we dropped lim more limited but the base level we're like making it accessible to like a lot of people because we want to like eventually have a bigger impact within fashion of like this, you know, in the sustainability movement, like helping reduce the demand for more new product and like recycle all this product. 
Um, but I think like on your level too, it's very valuable as well because it also inspires, it inspires people uh, into the movement and like to be educated about it and um, helps them like maybe get into it or make better choices in their life, you know? So equally as valuable. Um, have you been contacted by other brands at this point? Like, do you have any, any, any leaked news you can shed our way? <laughs> um, I know it's tricky because whenever we work with someone like there, it's like, don't say a word until it's like, until re it's ready to come out. I definitely pissed off this one brand. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It was before I did the whole Adidas campaign, but like, I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's, it's the opposite of Adidas. Yeah. Uh, like it's like a. So I mean, I was talking with Jordan Brand, um, right after Complex Con, and like I was gonna work on a project with them, but I felt like they didn't understand where I was. Like I had ideas that I wanted to present to them, and their vision of what they wanted me to execute was more so like there was no flexibility in it. And they were also, I felt like, weren't, like, uh, just the conversation I had with the ref, I could just tell that, like, he was coming at me from a place of, like, thinking that because I make everything myself and that I'm more of, like, an artist right now, that I don't understand, like, business. So, because before I was ever using my hands to make anything, I was, just like, basically thrifting and selling, you know what I mean? And, like always since I was a little kid I was always trying to like figure out how to make money and I went to school obviously for marketing so like when I had this conversation with him it was so like narrow where like he basically thought that like he could take advantage of me because like I'm younger and like oh you're working at Jordan so like then I recently had another pop-up and I heard kind of from someone who like was working there that uh that they were super pissed because it was kind of funny to me in a way because I felt like I was being taken advantage of or like disrespected of like what they were trying to compensate me and like what they were trying to make me do and like the deadline and shit because at first it was like I think I was supposed to make like one piece or something and then it was like 10 and then it was like oh you need to 40 jerseys for two basketball teams and I was like and they were giving me like a month and I was like and they still hadn't like they were supposed to give me these materials they had from like past seasons and shit and they were taking forever to do it and then they just like hit me like oh we need this done like now almost and I was like what the fuck do you think this is like you've been stalling on me for like a month and a half and then you hit me and then you want to quadruple the workload like barely like up the pay and then on top of that you're not letting me like say anything about like how I want to execute like to collaborate with the brand because I thought there was other things we could have done besides like just doing these like basketball jerseys for these teams and just the whole thing like I just felt like I wasn't being listened to or understood it was kind of like the rep threw me to this other dude for this from this creative 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 agent and so then I'm like not even talking to the person I was talking to to explain to him like what I'm trying to explain to the main dude and it was just like so much lack yeah, of communication man. That's like, so basically, he so hit that, me up. Yeah, keep going. So, so I, I had already gone and worked on the High Snobody project, and I was being treated well and respected and listened to, and I had tons of creative control. 
and I, I thought the Jordan thing was like gone. Like I didn't even think I was like could still work on it almost. And then he emails me like randomly like about it, you know, because I hadn't like fully like declined it yet. I was trying to wait and see if they were gonna like work with me. But then he was like, okay, so like this is the thing. Like, are we gonna do something? He emails this to me. I swear to God, five minutes. So I had already gone, made all the cutting stuff stuff for Adidas. Worked with Hashi Nabadi. Hashi Nabadi came out. Five minutes before I get a text from the person at Hashi Nabadi, it said post everything. Like it's going live, and they post like the whole lookbook, all the pieces, all that stuff from the Adidas part. The Jordan dude emails me and he's trying to like, whoever I was talking to for that project was trying to bullshit me in the email because they like think I haven't worked on anything yet and they think that they're going to be like the first brand to work with me and like take advantage of me kind of. And then I was like, I ignored the email. Like I'm in class, right? I'm like looking at this email and like I'm talking to my friend and he like works at Nike but like just at the store and we're just like, oh, whack. So then... I bet these people were so mad because like five minutes later, I get a text to post everything for the Adidas thing. I start posting all that stuff. And then like, I was on the, you know, like the front of foot action and like on High Snobody's page and like the video and everything. And then I bet the people are like sitting there, like who had just emailed me and just like, oh damn, we fucked up. <laughs> Cause I, I don't know. It's like no disrespect to them. I just personally felt like the way I was being approached, like they knew they were like, cut it like you know like kind of like taking advantage of me and or like trying to like not compensate me what I was what the project was and then they were also not willing to listen to like what I was doing like they had a vision of how they wanted it done and they had like not taken any input from me you know what I mean yeah no nah, man I feel that we've um we lost a major brand collab because of like leaking stuff too early and they, <laughs> which was fucked because we didn't even like there wasn't even talks about it you know what I mean? We didn't sign anything and there wasn't talks about it. We didn't even leak like that much information, but then like it got picked up by like uh hype Bay started like saw one of us post it and then hype Bay posted it saying like, Ooh, leaked news. And then it went like, Fly. and they were like, what the hell's going on? And we lost this whole big project, which sucked for us. We were bummed about it. And it wasn't even like they were trying to take advantage of us. It was just, we were so rookie in it at that point that we didn't realize like, these people keep this shit on wraps and like, um, but speaking on behalf of like working with brands, there's this brand called Sway Shop that I met recently from LA and she's the one that did all the Patagonia Warnware stuff. I don't know if you saw that. Oh yeah, man. I had mixed feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know, man. With the Patagonia thing, I feel like I had a, a rep from Patagonia who like traveled and did like, you know, like fixing things. Yeah. And he had FaceTimed me and I talked to the dude for like over an hour. And essentially he said he was going to send me, he was going to get pieces from Patagonia that like he worked there, like get old pieces or whatever, and then send them to me. And I was going to re do a rework chinchilla for him. And he was like asking me a little bit about my process. And, and then I was like, I felt like I, I thought I was going to do commission for this guy, right? I was talking to him a lot, and then I had another lady that I talked to in Chicago at this pop-up I was at. She worked for Patagonia, and I talked to her a lot, and man, it was like literally, when I talked to her, it was like right before they started posting all, like, like a month before, they started doing that whole rework thing, and I'm just like, fuck. I was like, did I just like, when they did the video, I swear to God, there was like a quote in there about like 
how the garment has a soul and like it's already lived other lives. And I'm like, I swear to God, I said that when I talked to that dude from Patagonia on FaceTime. And I was like overthinking that. I was like, did, did he, he, cause he never followed through on the commission or anything. Yeah. And then, see, he, and then I mean, he said he was going to fly me out to do a talk or something. And like, was like, kind of like, like acting like he was going to like work with me somehow. And then just never did. And then, then I saw all that stuff and I was like, man, like, did you just talk to me just to try to like get information from me to like apply it to what you guys were working on? You know what I mean? Well, like, I don't, I can't speak to that specific incident, but the brands definitely do that, man. They definitely do that because they want in on this sweet thing that we're doing because they know it's like, it has way more story than what they're doing. And they know there's a problem in the system. Right. Um, but that girl Sway Shop, she she was apparently talking to Patagonia for like 10 years about doing that project that she came out with. Um, and she, she's, I met her randomly. I went to see her in LA because I'm like, just like I reached out to you. I like talking to people in this space because it's like, we need to stick together. Like we, we have the same experiences and like there's the same hurdles and shit, right? Um, but I went to speak to her and she is a fucking G. She was like kind of, we're talking about working with brands and she's like, she's like, I don't sit, I don't even go into the conference room with the brand anymore unless they like come out with like a hundred thousand dollar check. Like if somebody wants to work <laughs> with me, like they got to fucking step up. This isn't a free game. Like I'm not going to tell you nothing until you're like signing contracts with me because she gets it. She gets it. The brands, what you're saying, they they talk to you and they, they want info and maybe they wanted to get a commission from you so they could copy it or whatever they were going to do. It's like, we have to like hold our ground kind of and like, you know, cause what we do is valuable and you know, we want to maintain this space moving the way it is and not let some big corporate bullshit take over, you know? So. Um, I think a lot of us like yourself and hypothetical come at it from a place of being independent and like, like thrifting and flipping stuff. And then we kind of like stumbled on all in our own ways. His was through hats and being at round two. Mine was at being at RSVP. And yours was from obviously some tons of vintage stuff. Yeah. So like we all were had a, an independent mindset, and then we're always just like hustling on our own. So like when it came to making things, it was never from like that standpoint. You know what I mean? I think that's where like the divide is in the industry when like companies want to like get in and start reworking things. It's like cool, but you're coming at it from a standpoint of like we're gonna make a thousand of these and they're going to look like this and like it's going to be so cool because it's free work and we're just going to have a big marketing campaign about it and it's like i think it's good the companies are involved i don't think there's a big impact when it is too small scale you know what i mean it's like if hypodelic does one hat with russell like it's cool marketing for both of them or if i did one piece with like someone it's cool marketing and we're shining light on reworking but I think there needs to be more of like the coexistence between collaborations. Like how can you or someone work with Nike and produce like a thousand of something, but like have every piece just go crazy. And like, maybe like in every state, like 10 Nike stores get it and they each get 10 pieces or something, you know what I mean? Like whatever it may be, like how can we do this on a big scale? and not sacrifice like the integrity of when it is on a small scale that I think is like, yeah, that's the challenge, man, for sure. Cause I think you can do it cause you're independent, 
but if if you were working under like a big brand like a champion or like someone who makes like you know sweatpants or something like that like if you were on their design team like they would want to be doing everything on a, a scale and dropping it in a certain way presenting it in a certain way and i think that's where like there's no there's no middle ground yet like it hasn't been fully connected you know what i mean like i feel like um this kind of reminds me of like streetwear and high fashion how like now it's so obvious it's connected but it took so long for the right people to get in the creative director position or like be able to be like why can't we do a collab with this brand or whatnot you know like i think what we're gonna see over the next like 10 to 15 years is like how are these brands going to adapt and be able to like really work and be impactful and work with someone like me, you, Hypodelic, or even in the case, like it seems like the lady who's working with Patagonia, it seems like coexistent because she has a factory. Yeah. Um, but I think it's like just continuing to cultivate those relationships and like figure out how do we come to a common ground and like work together without one party being the only one that benefits you know 100 percent, man and it's like that's why this is kind of important that we you know yourself myself hypodelic anyone doing this needs to like develop what they're doing and develop their name right because it is going to be our names like anyone can learn how to do this if they really put their mind to it but it is going to be like developing our names and our skills and like the way we do it that'll bring us into that next level with working with these big brands on a bigger scale i think i went to a sustainable fashion conference called um, fashion for good in amsterdam in the spring and they brought me and a couple other rework companies there to like talk about it and possibly connect with some brands and my whole plan when i went there was like what you're saying was you know if we want to make big change in the world we need to like attack it from the source like you know brands like uh well all the brands i don't want to call out names but all the brands have tons of products sitting in china that doesn't even end up making it over here because there's like a defect and they just throw out throw it out or burn it you know they're burning like thousands of pounds of clothes or throwing it in landfill that you know we could be remaking and they just it's like huge, huge amounts of waste that nobody even knows about or talks about. And like, I was kind of like, there's something there where we could be setting up creative spaces there before the stuff gets thrown out to like reuse it, recycle it, make it cool again. Um, still kind of in the idea phase of that whole thing, but it hasn't materialized, but that was kind of my thinking. It's like, there's ways to be doing this on a bigger scale where it does create a lot of change, but it's going to take a lot of work. Do you think it comes down to the production process? Because I I noticed like studying, um, I think the hardest part is really the pattern, right? So like, I think just all the pieces, it's just, like so many more seams than like a four piece t-shirt. So like, I've been like studying like factories, like some, you know, they stack material a hundred layers high and then use that saw on the pattern. But then um, I know, I think it's next level in LA, they have this million dollar seam where it does a pattern you stack it on the hot but it's laser laser so like, yeah. i'm thinking like um my real dad and my grandpa did tool and die work so like you're basically making the die the one die that is going to have metal pull like poured into it to then or this was molds my dad did molds but like if if, if chrysler is doing like a car right you make this mold 
and they're going to pour steel in there and then they're going to produce a hundred thousand minivans or whatever. But making that die is like the most important part at first. We're like, with what we're doing is the pattern. And obviously because our fabric, we can't stack a hundred layers and then cut through it with at either one of those machines. But if there was like some sort of laser, there was like a pattern cutting laser that was almost like a CNC machine where it could like size up. Like you could literally like put like a hoodie or something or like a pair of jeans and it would like, somehow like figure out the best way to cut the pattern pieces you need it it would be like that laser that next level has but it would need to be like more tuned down yeah well we i recently looked into that because that's the biggest headache of this business to scale is the cutting of course yeah but it's also the creative part it's the creative side but it's also what makes you not be able to scale it so they do have there's tons of different laser cutters out there and you can I mean, they are expensive. Yeah, they're like half a million dollars. I mean, you can get like cheap versions of certain lasers for like 10 grand, but I don't know exactly. The problem is I need to go somewhere where someone has one and like sit there for a week and like test it out and bring a bunch of used clothes and be like, how can we, because they run on, they run on software, right? And you can program the software to cut how you want as long as you got to, you can figure it out. So it'd be like, make a spot on the machine to put your t-shirt so that it gets cut the right way and all these different things. And it would take like a very good engineer to figure it all out. And, but I think that is the future to scale for sure is, is the laser cutters. man. But then it comes down to like, okay, so you could stack 50 gray hoodies, right? Yeah. And cut in the same pattern piece, but then like, so do you have to cut open the body completely? You know what I mean? Like you're going to have waste even from that. So then it's like, what do you do with that waste? From like uh, yeah. I mean, aren't... we try to utilize like a lot of it. Have you ever seen those big wiper cutter machines? It's like a, it's like a rotary blade that's on a big stand and you can like cut, cut fabric, like standing up. Wait, wait, wait. Explain that one again. So it's like, um, a lot of times, like after the rag would go from Salvation Army to a rag house, they take a lot of the t-shirts and they turn them into rags for like automotive businesses and stuff. And they, oh, so somebody okay. stands there with a t-shirt and it's this like rotary blade that has like a guard on it and you zip the t-shirt into like just rags, right? Oh, like this? It's like this? It's what you, there's the one you have like with your hand. You have that yeah. one, right? The red one? I don't, but I've... Oh, I've you, you, you only use scissors? I use a, like a... I use it like this thing, like literally a rotary blade, oh, okay. <laughs> like a ruler. Yeah, there's like a wicked one that's a handheld that has the blades like that big, probably same size as that blade, electric. That's only like eighty bucks. Those things are killer, dude. Um, but it's basically like that, but on a pole, but it's bigger, and you just you feed the fabric through it. Anyway, that's how you would take. You would have to break a garment still down to like its pieces, right? before you could then put it onto the, the laser thing. And I, and I don't have the answers because I've never actually played with it, but it's, it still has huge hurdles and challenges to make it work. But Okay, so even with the old school way, like if you broke those tees down, is that what you do right now is break the tees down, stack them, and then cut it out with that like saw? Some garments, I, I, I'll, I'll break the tees down, and then we'll stack like up to like six pieces maybe. But if you start doing more than that, it's hard because it doesn't sit right and – yeah, no, we don't. We can't stack a lot. Like I've tried okay. to like streamline it a bit, where I've sat there and worked it out and like really played with it. Because I do a lot of the cut. I don't do a lot of the cutting, but I know how to cut and I've like worked with it. Um, 
I think like six is like the most we, we can get to on any, any garment. And some garments where the logo placement's tricky, you can't stack any, you know, you got to cut them. Yeah. Single. So. Oh, that was one thing I wanted to ask you, because I, I I know you're like interviewing me, but I wanted to ask you, I was like thinking in the back of my head, because you resell so much. So I'm like, how do you decide what gets resold and what gets cut up? And then from there, like, then you just bring it in. And like, because like when you do the sweatpants, right, it's like Nike or Adidas. Like, how do you decide what gets get cut up you know what i mean is it is it dangerous versus versus like selling just the sweatshirt as is um yeah like we definitely take everything like when we have pickers like our team of pickers is out there they're picking like stains holes whatever so and a lot of times rag houses will just make us a grade they'll be like we're throwing all the brands in we also buy blank sweatshirt grades so it's like all different colors of blanks um and I mean, now, because like you can upload, like the value, it goes up. Right. So like you're, you know, if I can sell like a Nike swoosh hoodie, I mean, it's so crazy how like those center swoosh hoodies now, like the Travis Scott colors, like 200 bucks or whatever, but like, exactly, it wasn't always like that, you know, like, you know, a regular like crew neck with a swoosh, I don't know, 40 bucks, but then we cut it up and make it into a $120 pair of pants. So it's like, you're not losing money there really you're, you're adding value to it um but yeah we try not to cut up like really sick vintage you know because why would yeah. we if we could sell it it's like let's move the vintage right yeah usually it's like and we're not we're not being picky about age of stuff either you know and the re- when we were first were reworking it was like we're only reworking true vintage but now it's like our mission has went from like the idea of vintage to like the idea of sustainability. So it's like, we'll rework anything that we think we can make cool. If it was made yesterday and it went to a thrift store, or if it was made 20, 30 years ago, it went to a thrift store. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's where I'm at too. Yeah. Cause I mean, like if you find something, it could look old and it's like, if it's going to get thrown away anyways, it's like, what difference does it make? You know what I mean? Like half of the material will be vintage that you combined it with. Exactly. Yeah. So, Sweet, dude. Um, I think I don't even know how long this has been, man. We've been on here a while. I know. Um, you got like, any um, shout-outs or anything else you want to chat about? Um, I think I think the reworking community is interesting because I think where a lot of us are right now is in, like, you know, taking things that are already made and reusing with, like, the graphics and everything. Yeah. Um, and I think we kind of almost operate, like, in a weird space where like sometimes I think people look at stuff and they don't fully understand like how it's made, you know, we're so used to looking at like clothes and it's like, Oh, they're made in China and like, make it for $15 and stuff or a hundred. Like, I don't know. There's like a weird area where like most of us still are reusing logos. And I don't know. It's like, it's kind of like, I feel like we're in a tricky spot um i think every day too i see more and more as i'm on instagram i don't know if you notice this but like there's like more and more people just randomly pop up and like out of nowhere like they literally oh like reworkers or creatives yeah yeah like i feel like how maybe like t-shirt brands or photographers were like five years ago is like now it's like reworkers like now everyone's trying to rework stuff but like i feel like a lot of people's execution is not there 
but like a lot of people don't know garment construction so they're on instagram they see something that's reworked even if it has like no collar or like no finished seams that this it just looks cool i think that's where like there's like a divide still because there's like people that are like really making something you could like wear and wash and like use yeah and then there's um like an art side to it still i think like with nicole mclaughlin like a lot of her stuff like the shoes and stuff are not even wearable and i think maybe that too is where there's like misunderstanding with brands because i know she did at notre here in chicago uh, a whole like workshop where they made like a sneaker but like that's like literally taking a stolen like cutting a columbia windbreaker and just folding it and super gluing it it's not wearable so like i think when brands approach and they want to do like oh let's have someone like make clothes and like go home with it it's kind of like oh man like that could take a few hours and like <laughs> that, that's kind of what i was saying about like she's the extreme end of just inspiring people to be creative with recycling like literally almost nothing she has made is wearable she did like one project with reebok because she used to work for reebok eh? Yeah, I listened to her interview. Yeah. yeah, I've like spoke to her on the phone. We were going to do a Frankie project with her, but it just never lined up properly. Um, but yeah, she's on the super extreme end of like that. And then like like that Sway shop, the girl who does Patagonia is on like the super extreme end of like wearability. Like she put her shit, like you're saying, like washable. She put it through like the, the wash test of like Arteryx outerwear. Like 50 washes, you know what I mean? Like to make sure her yeah. quality is like so high. Um. And then there's like, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle, like, you know, your quality is super high. You're over on this side. It's like, you're right. It is a weird spot. And as far as like the spot we're in where it's popping up a lot, it's popping up because it, like you said, it's a, it's a trend right now and there's sustainability and it's accessible for people. So people are wanting to learn. And, you know, the business side of me is like, ah, fuck, there's like all this competition out there now. But then the other side is, it is like, I should be supporting that because I, I believe in the movement. Right. So I'm kind of on like the, let's just support this movement side of things. Um, and as far as like what people understand of it, I think that comes down to like us being, being able to educate people. Like we're really trying to do more storytelling with Frankie and like show the process and show and talk about the different environmental issues and, the creative side of what we're doing and the fun side of what we're doing and all these different things. And I think that's where we can get away from using brands and it it just becomes cool enough as itself as a, as a rework where the movement will become bigger and people will understand like, Oh, I can go buy the new hoodie. It's like you said, 15 bucks sell it for a hundred or I can buy the hoodie for 200 that somebody made here from recycled materials. It's helped solve a problem. And they get the story behind that, you know, and I really think that comes down to all of us like telling the story. And that's, you know, like we talked about earlier, it's tricky, but it's important. Uh, my next question, last question really I could think of is where do you see everything going now? Like, okay, so we're in a place right now where like, I feel like every day on Instagram, I see people who's like quality is crazy bad. And like, it's like a white backdrop. This is what I see every day. It's like five new Instagrams a day where like somehow like they get like a few thousand likes, like crazy comment stuff. And it's like always like spray painted weird reworked stuff with like a bad photoshopped white background. And part of me is just like, where, like, 
I don't fully comprehend like where this is coming from or like how it's getting so far through Instagram. You know what I mean? Because like I feel like I remember when I started following Hypedelic before he made the John Mayer hat. Like he was like stuck at like two or three k for a while, and now he's like surpassed because he got his workout in front of someone big. But to me, like sometimes the internet feels deceitful as hell because I feel like some people have really talented work and then it's just like buried somehow. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's a weird thing, but that kind of leaves true. me wondering. Yeah. I try personally, I try not to like dwell on that. Cause it's kind of like we talked about <laughs> earlier. It's like the whole, the whole, like you're going to, you got to just stick to your guns, you know? And like we, you know, a couple people in my team always want to compare us to like all these other people and like, Oh, look what so-and-so did look at so-and-so. And I'm always like, fuck looking at who I don't even want to look at what anyone's doing. Like, sure. I look at it, but I'm not like, let's not like put everyone's work up on a board and like discuss it. Let's just like do what we want to do and stick to our yeah. lane. And we know it's worked and it's going to continue to work. And like, there's so many people that have come out and like, you know, copied us. And then there's levels to that too. Cause you're like, so people have copied us straight up. Like I'm talking like you made a dress, you made the same different cut exactly the same. And you're like, you could have just like changed the cut, like the lines or anything to make it your own dress, but you just didn't. And like, and then there's a lot of people that like do similar things. And I'm like, good, we're inspiring people to do these things. Like that's rad. Just go out and do your thing. That's cool. And my mentality with that is like, I just want to stay one step ahead. Like I put out enough new products where like, you know, you don't know what I'm putting out next. You know what I mean? You don't know what's coming out after that. And like, I'm just going to keep moving and whatever everyone's doing, they're going to do. And as far as like getting the recognition, like with Instagram and stuff, it's like, yeah, that's like a whole nother beast, man. That's like, you probably follow some hashtag and like people shit pops up in your feed or something. Right. I don't follow any hashtags. Yeah. But I mean that, I mean, I guess that would be, I, there's so many ways to get yourself out there, but I guess like where I was going with the question is like, we have all these people popping in the same way that brands did like t-shirt brands and photographers. And then it all faded away. Like, you know what I mean? Like once something becomes oversaturated, like then the people who are left are like the people who truly care about what they're doing and that phase out. But I just don't fully know what phase of everything we're in right now. I was just wondering like, where do you see things going in the next five okay. to 10 years? Um, well, I hope it goes to a level where we're able to work with big brands and do this on a bigger level. I hope it's like, it doesn't, I hope it's bigger than just a fashion trend. And it's like a, a new way of thinking about clothing more so, you know what I mean? Cause like, yeah, t like popping up graphic tees. Sure. That was like a streetwear trend, I guess. And I just hope, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I get, the, I get the question a lot of like, when when do you think vintage is going to be not cool anymore and you're like vintage is never not going to be cool it's just that something else will be cool within vintage you know just yeah, like i agree with that you know it's like now rap tees are popping but it used to be like rock tees and then it was like you know levi's had a day and hippie fashion had a day all these different things had their time and with reworking it's like this is a way now of of dressing and i think we can always evolve the way it looks and the way it feels and what's happening within the reworking space. But I don't think it's going anywhere, man. I agree with you. Like when I heard you orchestrate, like how you said that, it made me realize that like 
even though because I'm so like narrow lens in this world like even though to me it seems like a lot of people are popping up at the end of the day I feel like the average household like if you talked about rework stuff to them like wouldn't even understand it or might not have never even seen it so I feel like we're so early on in the of this being like a way of doing something that it's just like it almost feels like the start of like I like to compare a lot of stuff to music but I feel like it's almost like the start of like a new genre of music you know what I mean like it, it descends from like what was before and then it just continually evolves and then I think the perspective of not looking at what other people are doing is like totally correct I think it does suck when like as an artist some people's stuff is uh, worse, but then like more received. But I, I think it just, it goes back to like music too, because I think you could, just how you said, anyone who put their heart into this could learn how to sew something like me or you, maybe not as good a quality, but it's like the same thing as like recording a song, right? Like anyone can figure out how to make a beat and anyone can figure out how to speak on it. But if you don't have like a true message or like you don't have a personality, like your name, you're talking about your name, think that's where everything is like we all have room in this atmosphere because like if you look at any genre of music, five artists sound exactly the same you have your own sound like you have a way you execute on things and that's what's gonna like keep all of us relevant totally and there might you might have the hurdles where like you do a, like we talked before you do a project and it doesn't get the hype that you think it should and maybe that's not it's not even because it's not deserve it of the hype it's just like the stars didn't align on that one but like i feel like if you always stick to it it will eventually get what you you'll get what you deserve and your product will get what you it deserves but too many people get jaded by that one thing that didn't that didn't make it or like someone else made a shittier product and it went bigger and then they get pissed and just drop out where it's like you just had to stick it out a little bit longer to get your shine you know yeah um yeah, man. It's interesting. It's interesting. We'll see what happens. I think I think that's a good ending message. I was it just everything in life goes back to that. Like uh you get what you what you deserve, you know, like karma comes around. Um in due time everyone gets what they put out, you know. That's a thing. Po positive energy. Get positive energy. Yeah. Put yeah. it out there. Cool man. Well thanks for coming on the show, dude. I appreciate no this. Problem. Thank you for having me. I hope I didn't rant too much. I'm like, I, I know I get carried away sometimes where I'm like, when I get, I, I speak on mine, you know, like, I hope I didn't offend anyone or any of these brands. No, but... no, dude, no, no, no. Don't worry <laughs> about that. I don't know. Jordan brand a little bit, but hey, whatever. Um, I mean, I, I love them. If they, I have ideas, you know, so it's like, I, I still love you. And if, if you want to approach me and I have ideas laid out, I just felt like at the time, the way I was approached, it was a bad first impression. Yeah. And like, dude, you're entitled to your opinion and everything plays out a certain way, dude. Totally. Uh, and it's good for people to speak their mind. Otherwise, this podcast would be fucking boring, dude. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, just try, I try not to get like too carried away when I speak my mind, but I do, I, I was grateful that I got to like share my truth. Good, you know? good. I'm glad, dude. I'm glad. All right. Well, um, again, great to talk to you. Stay safe out there in your lockdown and, uh, oh. we'll, we'll connect soon, brother. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for having good. me. I appreciate it. For sure.